Welcome to the Better Business Podcast, a series for those business owner operators who want to create a better business. Here are your hosts, Chris and Mark. Hello and welcome to the Better Business Podcast with Chris Pesmenti here and Mark Eggleston up in our Sydney studio as per last podcast. How have you been? I've been pretty good actually. Been uh, ships in the night recently. We haven't really had a lot of uh, dialogue with one another. Uh, business well? Business is good. A little slow, but uh, no complaint about that because I'm just organising myself into doing something. So that's good. Yeah, transitioning into not working. <laughs> no, trans. Well, partly, but transitioning into how I want to work. Ah, beautiful. More accurately. That's the ideal. You were going to say. Yeah, I was going to ask you about your fashion experience. Oh yes. Uh, and it actually speaks to the uh, to the topic of this podcast, uh, where we where we do want to cover off some topics or in relation to how um, organisations position themselves. And uh, I thought I'd share a story up front that might just uh, help us dissect this topic a little bit. So, just in relation into my story and positioning, recently I've had occasion to shop uh, for my wife for a birthday present. And given that it was a relatively special birthday, I thought I would visit some of the high-end fashion houses of uh, Collins Street and, and the uh, surrounds in Melbourne. Um, and it really, really struck me that I, I just got so aghast and frustrated with the whole experience that um, in the end, I almost gave up and, and, and threw a particular, not threw, but almost thrust a particular item back into the hands of the shop attendant and said, I don't even know what I'm paying for anymore. Oh, my God. And the experience was this, and, and this is not to um, come across as, as aloof or arrogant or racist in any way, but anyone who's, who's had the uh, chance or opportunity to, to visit any of the uh, high-end boutiques, and, and we're talking all the, I guess, known brands at the, at the upper end of the uh, spectrum in, in the fashion sense, um, almost entirely attended to by Mandarin-speaking, uh, I would say, Chinese shop, shop assistants or attendants in the shops who almost have no capability whatsoever to converse or attend to, uh, to someone who isn't of, of Chinese background which I thought was really, really interesting given that you walk through the doors of an Italian or a British or an American or French or German uh, design house and you're greeted to or greeted by um, almost a, a language barrier in your own city. And it's really, really amazing. It's, it's sort of like an out-of-body experience. That would um, – you'd have to think that they're positioning themselves directly to high-spending Chinese, I guess. Well, this is exactly right. So the, the thing that the thing that I'm sort of reconciling this whole time is to say I am not their intended target, and you know, having that sort of awareness to think in those terms, I'm going. I'm completely okay with this, but it just means I can I choose not to shop there. Yeah. And what was quite funny was that as I was walking up um, Collins Street, there's a Gucci store there. And the line outside of Gucci, and this is probably only about oh, 20 minutes before closing time on a Sunday afternoon, the, the line outside of Gucci would have been 60 to 70 people long. I'm really interested why there was a line in the first place. Well, I suspect it's because they only allow a certain amount of shoppers in the store at any one time. Uh, at a time, so, they, so that would um, make sure there's not too much pilfering. 
yeah, I'd imagine for the pilfering and also potentially for the service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then when you when you look at the, I guess the demographic of the line, I would say then of of those all those people in that line again, it would have been ninety percent um, uh, whether they're Chinese nationals or or, or Chinese Australians that that uh, will be shopping in there and no doubt conversing in native tongue. It was so, really really interesting. Let's move this to a business businesses you, you've worked with and I've worked with. So clearly you'd have to suspect, as you know and I know, that positioning feeds straight into your business model. So there must have been some discussion amongst the people that run these businesses in Australia about our business model is this. We don't really care about the Indigenous people, e.g. Australians. We think most of our income is going to come from high-spending Chinese, or not even high-spending, but Chinese that are prepared to spend that amount of money. Do you think that's what was going on? Uh, 100%. Otherwise, um, it would be almost a death knell for every one of those stores because um, not only were they largely empty, I was essentially the only uh, European or Anglo or Anglo-Australian or European-Australian descent. Which is a really interesting position to take because the moment there isn't a high number of those type of customers here, those stores are going to be in trouble. Yeah, well, and and this is the point. Um, I that there is obviously, as we know, there's a there's a big local population that that would be spending there. Um, but I think it's also the tourism dollar as well. I mean, it's I'm not sure what all the exchanges and and whether Australia is a shopping destination for um, uh, Asian or Chinese. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, do you know? Are we a shopping destination? No, I think it's more that they're here. I think it's more that they're here, and I think they've got quite. They're very brand conscious. Uh, I think, and I think that's probably what's going on. What I'm really interested in now is, though, for you to talk, and we, you and I, have talked about this a lot in the past. To, for you to give an example of a business whose positioning you really like that you've worked with. And why it's so important. Yeah, so if I get to, I guess, the next part of this story, then where I got handing an, a particular item back uh, to the attendant and, and, and where I said, look, I, I do like it, but realistically, I, I don't know what I'm paying for anymore, which was, i.e., I'm not sure why I'd be paying a premium for this item. It spoke to my need to receive some service. And in the lead up to that incident, if you like, or, the, or me walking out of, the, out of that shop with nothing, was the fact that I had to pull out my phone to converse with the shop attendant in pictures by looking up their own website to pull up a picture of the thing that I was after for the privilege of paying $900 for it, which was twice as much as, as one that I thought was slightly better from another store. So <laughs> I, I, um, I looked at it and said, you know what? Uh, this is just not hitting my. It's not hitting me in the feels. This whole experience. Uh, I best walk out now and 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 make a different choice. So as I'm walking out, I'm thinking, you know, th- there's the piece there. So from a a to product perspective, you know, big tick, high end product. From a um, market perspective, well, was I the, was I the right market for that buyer? Well, my wife definitely would be. It was a particular item that appealed to a professional uh, woman. Um, in, in, a, in, a, in a commercial setting. Yes, tick. Was the price positioned exactly as it needed to be for that particular product? Yes, but was it positioned for the level of service that I got? Now, the level of service that I got was actually a big uh, cross, if you like. So when we talk about positioning, I always run it through that filter of product, market, service and price. Now, I'm really glad you mentioned that because um, as 
we like to keep it relatively simple. There are only four places you can position yourself. Well, there probably are more, but to keep it simple, and it's those four. Yeah. And so when I'm aligning all this up in my head and and taking almost like this business coach's view of this experience that I was having, it's a little bit dorky and a bit geeky and, and we can overanalyze this. But as I'm sitting there uh, or standing there in this particular shop, I'm going, this this whole business model doesn't align for me. It, it all felt out of whack. And when I was walking out of the shop, as I said, I must have a need for service somewhere in me that values service highly. Like if it was a good experience and I felt well looked after, um, I probably would have made the decision to buy. Okay, so this then begs the question, did you end up buying the article that you wanted to buy for your wife's birthday? And how did that work out if you did buy it? So what I did do is I went uh, on a stroll through the laneways as we do have down here in Melbourne and came across another uh, shop that sold similar goods. And as I walked in there, it was a chalk and cheese experience. So whilst whilst there was still um, a premium product, you're in the end going to pay a, a premium price and I guess, you know, appeals to, again, the, the exact positioning of that product was positioned to people like me and my wife in a commercial or a professional setting. The service was outstanding. So it, it essentially ticked all those boxes in, in a way where all those attributes of, of what you were talking about there of how you position an organisation, they all lined up. And I, so was the product, was, did the product make you look like it was what you wanted to buy? Obviously it did because you bought it. Mm, okay. It was a high-end product or it is a high-end product. The other factor was then the service. So that service factor that came into play was that I felt like I was looked after. Like, you know, when I was dealing with the, the young lady, she made me feel like I was the only person in the store and she was going to see it through right to the end, even to the point of the gift wrapping and the fact that she noticed that I was on, um, I was on my motorbike because I had my motorbike jacket on. And she said, given that we're going to gift wrap it rather nicely, um, do you have a adequate um, baggage to, to pack it into or do you want me to hold it for you when you can come back um, and pick it up in your car? Oh, wow. So that now that's service. So where? When it all lines up, you can't say no, can you? It's very hard to say no. I'm really interested to know, and I'll, I'll give you an example of this myself in a minute. Can you give an example of a business that's positioning wasn't what you thought it should be? Well, if you want me, if you want me to name it and, in fashion houses. No, no, uh, one that you've coached. Um, that I've coached, yes. And how you got them to position themselves properly. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I, I was working, the, the one that immediately leaps to mind is working with a custom um, house design and build company um, and their, their initial positioning of that business as we that I, I, we were brought in for a number of reasons to do with their growth uh, strategy and, and they've hurt, hit certain hurdles and feeling quite stuck as, as leaders and whatnot in the business. And then when we had the, I guess, the whole business diagnostic and looked through it, um, we got asked the question by the managing director and he said, look, I want you to answer this honestly. What do you think of the name of our business? And I said, in what context? He goes, as in the way, what the name of the business is and how we, have, and how we advertise it and our marketing tagline. And what it was was that their name was, the business was actually named as a, a bit of a play on words on their, on their actual surname. And I don't want to, you know, name the business and, and it was a play on words. It was rather sort of kitsch and hokey the way that it was designed. And then, and then the way that the logo was designed was almost like a caricature of this play on words. 
So in terms of the market they were looking to attract and the way that they were they were naming their business and, and pitching their business to the marketplace, which was just chalk and cheese. You had this low-end feel around market and yet their product and their service was, was pitched at, at, at sort of the mid to high range. Okay, so if we go across the metrics product market service price uh, so the listeners can get a handle on this, how is their market? Their market was all over the shop. It was mostly... Okay. Their service? Was high-end. Their product? A really good service. Their product was pitched at, at mid to high. And their price? And their price was, was mid to low. So it's, it was really mixed? Yeah, really mixed. There was no real alignment across their, you know, that matrix. Used mm-hmm. um, so there were some real choices to be made there. So the, the, the essence of that question in asking me, what do you think of our name, led to a, a deeper conversation which, hand on heart... Wasn't serving them, would be fair to say, by the sounds of it, listening to it. Yeah, well, it wasn't serving them. And I just said, look, when I, when I look at it, I said it doesn't portray, who, you know, who you are and also what you want to achieve. So... The way what? their vision for their business was not... Ah, so they had a vision. Well, when we went through it, when we discussed it with them to say, where do you want to take this business? Who do you want to appeal to? Where, you know, what does it need to... Um, achieve for you so that you feel like you're you're fulfilling everything that, that you want to get out of this business. It, it just didn't add up. Okay. And then when you get into the positioning, like you described, uh, it was the same. So what did you attack first? What we did do was they had a um, they had a, a part time marketing assistant, and she was actually quite proficient. She was a very experienced lady, but they had her, I guess, doing more of the. Um, what would you call it, the collateral side of marketing, like putting brochures together, making... Yeah, of an, of an already... She was putting together brochures of an existing, uh, not really name that was serving them at all. Yeah, no, not, not necessarily a strategic approach. So what she had wanted to do uh, was, was start doing a bit of a research exercise. So um, what we embarked on was, was getting her involved in doing a bit of some market research around not only their name, but also... What were the buying habits of the people that they they wanted to appeal to? What was the range of what their competitors were were selling um, uh, designs and, and build contracts for? What was the price range of where they were situated geographically? All this sort of stuff. And, and what she put together was a really, really good report on painting the picture that, that we described, putting all the, I guess, the detail and the content around that picture that you described earlier on that, that spoke about their price you know, service market and product. And um, she went on a, on a redesign, repositioning the business with starting from the very top around their purpose, the vision that they wanted to create, the, uh, the culture that they want to get out there, and then working it through the business model. That is really interesting you say that because, as you know, and as I know, that when you get positioning right, it gives you total focus in every part of your business. So, you know, the as an internal process more than a marketing process? It is an internal process and nothing can be out of whack. Well, things are out of whack sometimes, but if you do it properly, nothing's out of whack. Starting from the receptionist, going all the way through the business, how they invoice, how they treat their customers, what their offices look like, what their culture's like. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic tool, isn't it? It sounds like these people did all of that, just looked at everything, put everything... They, they absolutely implemented everything that, um, I guess, all the real highlights that came out of this research 
And because um, what it also told them was that they already they'd already um, attracted a very high caliber of of not only tradesperson but um, management. That like so they had really good designers. They had very good sales management they, or, or people in those roles. Um, and they had very good uh, fastidious building ma construction managers. So, I'll give you an example of that right there yeah. with an architect I work with who's geographic, he has a geographic focus, which is basically from the Spit Bridge to the Harbour Bridge, yeah. very wealthy suburbs of Sydney. Mm -hmm. He was hiring someone. Uh, he talked a lot about hiring this person. And uh, when I saw him, after he was meant to have hired this person, I said, how did that go? And he said to me, I didn't hire them because I just don't think that they can deal with people, the high-end business people and their wives in that area. I just don't think they've got the right attitude, the right style, so I didn't hire them. Interesting. And this is an architect he was going to hire, who you'd think, who are always fully, very highly qualified, yes. but just didn't fit his positioning. And, and was there a particular... So when it was the was it on communication or was it yes they would okay right on communication yeah and being very um, aware of what it is that his client base likes to not only would expect how they like to hear it yeah they're very a lot of his client base are very wealthy well they need to look the part they but need to be able to they need to firstly be technically qualified which this person was but <clears throat> they need to be able to speak properly look the part the whole thing. Um, so where did this end up with your builder? It was quite extraordinary because oh, okay. what they ended up um, calling their business, the whole rebrand, was just removing the play on words to their surname and using their surname because it, it, it was just it was just it was staring them in the face, saying, "If you're going to, uh, if you feel like it's a bit sort of uh, playful and a bit sort of low end for what you're trying to achieve, why wouldn't you just use your surname and and then you know call it?" call it, you know, whatever their surname was, um, custom custom homes. And that's what they ended up doing. And they came up with some very elegant, um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, icon iconography and graphics. And, and then they changed the whole way they present that through their website, their presentations, um, the way they presented their display homes. Everything started lining up to, to the product that they would prefer to sell. And within... I would say within about three to six months of the launch of their new positioning, um, there was noticeable shift in the average sell price of, of right across their range of homes. So it played it, it played straight into their business model. Directly into it fed the fact that they already had uh, a good product. It fed the fact that they already had excellent uh, people and service in the business. Um, so what it meant was that once they once they worked out how to reposition not only just the internal um, focus of the business but externally focusing it to appeal to a different marketplace, it meant that their price, which is very hard to just come up with a price strategy, it's very hard. No, it's, it's hard. It, it takes them, yeah. Because the, the market generally won't respond. They'll actually ask the question why. So what they did was we, we went on a bit of a market strategy Appeal to a different marketplace through through their um, business name and their their marketing and their uh, the way they position themselves, and um, what you saw was their price started creeping up. Lovely story, Chris. Lovely, lovely story. Very clean, and it wasn't like they were um, 
sort of turning their back on 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 their old customers or whatever. It just meant that they gave them a chance to innovate a product to appeal to a different section of the marketplace. Mm. I thought I'd, I've been thinking while you've been giving this example of a couple of people I think have got their positioning, well, one couple that didn't and one that did. Yeah. The one that did is a lot of people would know this one and they already had their positioning in place when I started working with them and that was Nespresso and I'll give their name. I wouldn't normally work with a large corporate like that, but in this particular instance, there was a job to do that was very akin to who we normally work with as in owner-operators. Yes. And because they've been around for a while, because they're a large corporate, they spent a lot, they had spent a lot of effort on their positioning and it is, it, in my view, is with a couple that are faultless and that would be one. And I thought I'd just test this out a bit so I went into one of their retail outlets, their, what they call a boutique. Yep. And it was absolutely a flawless experience. It's a good place for a free coffee for anyone listening. In. It is. Yep. <laughs> it, and what is really interesting, what happens when you get this right is um, – your customer base will pretty much unquestionably take up anything you have to offer. And, you know, the, the brand, well, Nespresso have the coffee makers, the coffee itself, they have coffee cups, they have spoons, they have oh, – their collateral goes on and on forever, all to do with coffee. They go, I didn't realise that they had that kind of stuff. And the, their customer base just buys this without even thinking, and it's beautifully designed. Yeah. It fits in with the machines and the coffee and everything else. And it's just um, it's it's really interesting how powerful this is when you get it really right. They're the apple of the coffee world. They are the apple of the coffee world. They exactly are the apple of the coffee world. That is true. And Apple is a really good example of getting positioning right. Although I think it's slipped a bit lately. Yep. Um, but that, that's another example. Uh, as an example of where this didn't wasn't working quite so well was um, the urban planning client I worked with. They were high-end boutique. Uh, their service was good. Their market, was, their market wasn't quite right in that. The most expensive job they would do would be in some several hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the cheapest job they'd do would be two and a half to $3,000. And if you think about that, you think, how could you do a $3,000 job profitably or a several hundred thousand dollar job profitably? Mm. And when they looked at that, they actually had a line in the sand eventually where they went, we will do no job under $10,000. Okay. And what did that do? Well, wow, that, this was really, really interesting because when you went in and looked at all the people that were doing the work, it actually freed them up to do larger jobs with more profit in them. Yeah. We actually discovered that they were doing quite a lot of these little small jobs that were just jamming up the factory for yep. Factory is in the people that were doing the work. Yes. It's just clogging it up terribly. So was that initially a product strategy, tweaking the product? Um, a bit of both, actually. It was product was still the same. It was just a cheaper version of their product. Yep. And it was clients that wanted small jobs like that done. They just referred them out to someone else. Okay. Who they trusted. Yes. And so the client still feels like they're being looked after. They did feel like they were being loved. They got a nice bit of verbiage around it, like we don't think we can do this job the best 
we can for you. We suggest these people. They're really good. We like what they do. We know them. We trust them. Yep. Excellent. Um, what about the situation? So that that's one that didn't work, that you worked on getting it to work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some good examples out there, but what, one of the things I think is worthwhile is that um, we, we talk just very briefly about, I guess, where some of this theory comes from on, on positioning. And I, I do recall that um, one, one of the things that really hit home with me very early on in my coaching career was when um, I read a book called Positioning the Battle for the Mind by, uh, I think it's Jack Tout, and I always forget the other author's name. It's, it's only a small book, and it was written some time ago. And I, I, when I say some time ago, I'm pretty sure it was early 80s. Um, and I guess what, one of the premises of this book was was uh, talking about, I guess, the age of consumerism that we were entering into um, a situation back then, where, which is always funny to look at in hindsight, where what they were talking about was that consumers will have so much choice that or the battle for the mind is the organisations that really need to be able to position their brand or their product um, at number one or two in the minds of the marketplace. Otherwise, you're just fighting amongst the reeds with everyone else. And um, and so the examples that I always like to give when I'm doing a workshop on this sort of stuff is, you know, turn around to the room and ask everyone, um, what's the tallest mountain in the world? And, you know, everyone will say Mount Everest. And then you say, what's the second tallest? And a lot of people will, will get the answer of K2. Most won't, but some will. And then you say, well, what's the third tallest? And right there, no one knows what the third tallest mountain in the world is, unless you do, of course, Mark. Uh, on a good day, I might. <laughs> yeah, well. Then go to rivers. Then go to... Um, well, then, then what you can do is, so you, you can ask longest river in the world, a second longest, after that people tend to run out. And what it starts illustrating to people is that we, we condition ourselves to know that the top one or two things in most categories or we'll have a go-to um, uh, default process when we're, we're either learning information or, or buying things or, or um, things that we, you know, products that we tend to favour. Um, but then once we get beyond that second one, it's, it's just a, a, usually a choice that gets made on, on what of those four things, do you reckon? Oh, I'd say price. Yeah, it starts getting down to price. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that, they, that, that this book really tuned my mind into was that if you're, bat, if you're not positioned number one or two in, in the minds of the marketplace or in the minds of your client base, then you, you'll be battling amongst the reeds, and usually that battle will be won or lost on price. And if that is, business that is absolutely true. Yeah, mm-hmm. and if your business isn't really geared up to get into that price war scenario, um, realistically, you're just going to end up being out of business on a cash flow issue. Yeah, it's going to really hammer your cash flow. Yeah. And you don't um, always need to go into a myriad of Excel spreadsheets to get it idea of what's going on when you're working with a client. Absolutely not. You can generally tell what's going on by just doing a bit of research. And just for for listeners out there, you're getting a real piece of Australiana in the background here. Are they rosellas at your place? They're parrots. It started to rain and and they they just go berserk when it rains. There's a, a... 
Talking about position one or two, it's the car rental company that's end line is We Try Harder. So they were absolutely happy to be number two. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it worked for them. When you had these conversations back in the early 90s in Australia when we had a quite a, um, um, well, not booming, but it, it was a very big car industry, a local manufacturing car industry, if you asked um, people to say, name a luxury uh, brand of motor vehicle, they would generally go Mercedes and then say, well, name another one, and they'd say typically BMW. And you'd say, name another one. And then you'd, and then you'd get you know, whether it would be Audi or, you know, they might say Rolls-Royce or they might say something else. Um, but as time's gone on, that conversation there, when, when you th- start thinking about the battle um, for the for the market share that the car companies have at the moment, um, ask that question now, and it's a really interesting response that you get. It's not even it's not even Mercedes or BMW number one and two, clearly. It's, 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 it could be one of ten names. It could be one of ten names. There absolutely could be. As we said earlier in this conversation, there generally are only four places you can position yourself, product, market, service, price. What I've found is when you do this with a client, they want to position themselves across all four immediately. Have you found this? Yep. And what I do, and I think you probably do the same, is you say pick one, position yourself there to start with, then make the other three line up with that. So just focus on one, and then they understand it. So my client has a geographic market, my architect client. Yes. Spit bridge to Harbour Bridge, really clear. Yep. So his price is high, his service is unbelievable, his product is, well, he was telling me the other day that someone plonked $8 million down in cash for a house, <laughs> no loan. You go, okay. Would it be fair to say, somewhat cheekily, it's the same people that uh, the, the fashion boutiques would <laughs> try to appeal to? No, no, it wasn't. Actually, it was people that had sold businesses. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So um, it, it, to get this clear in the mind of the listener, just pick one. Pick your one. Yeah. Is it a product? Is it a market? Is it a service? Or is it a price? And then make the other three line up with it. It sort of speaks to that theory, doesn't it, that if you're positioned well, there's no such thing as competition? Yeah, there isn't actually. And I like coming up with some provocative statements like that when I'm working with businesses. And um, it's funny the looks you get because you're sort of putting it right out there to say um, the pressure's on you. Invest in, in your position. Invest in your business model. Invest in taking everything that you want to stand for as a business and, ma- and making it actually real, not just words on a page, but make it real. And when you make it real, there will be no such thing as competition. That is absolutely true. That's when I often give them the example of um, the domestic uh, airline market. Oh, I love the domestic airline one. And, you know, it's often I often give because I love this one as a bit of positioning is virgin because yeah. I actually think they get it so right. Oh, absolutely. And not only do, do they get it right, but, but Qantas gets it right, Jetstar gets it right, and Tiger gets it right. And yeah, they do, actually. They do. I think Qantas has lost it a bit now, though. Well, well you, know, you get on a Qantas plane or you, you're waiting in the uh, departure lounges for, for Qantas flights domestically, it's still the business traveller. It is. It is. It's, they've tied it up in, in loyalty programs. They've tied it up in that, that um, I guess, that whole story around safety and that they're the Australian 
you know, they're the Australian airline. Um, so there's there's all of that stuff that gets tied up in there. And when you when you're in the Qantas departure lounge, it is ninety plus percent business travel. Yeah, product position. I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's really might be worthwhile now just to reiterate the product market service price strategy. If you talk about Jetstar. Yep. So if you think about what, what you were talking about earlier on about that, that primary position with your architecture client who has the market as, their, as their, their primary, when you think about product market service and price across the domestic airline and why I think it's such a good example to give to people is that Qantas position themselves on, on their product. Jetstar are very much safe, a safe product. It still rings true. Everything they do is safe. They employ safe-looking people. They have safe dialogue and this last... Oh, look, I was waiting for a, for a Qantas plane a little while ago and I was late. Yes. And they said, oh, we're just moving the plane from somewhere to the, where you get, you know, the gate where you get on. Yeah. This is what they said. This is going to take us a little bit longer. You wouldn't want us to be unsafe, would you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> and it means that any delay can be, uh, can be yes. off as a safety issue, can't it? Can be. Goes, oh well, that's why I'm on this flight. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, whilst whilst they they definitely look at that safe product uh, position as their primary, Jetstar, who is a, is a brand of Qantas, and they do it well to split the market so that they they own a, a couple of places in it, um, is very much why it might be worth talking about why they whether they didn't call it Qantas something else. Well, because it's because Jetstar works. When you actually highlight this to people, that you you can't catch a Qantas flight into a lot of the destinations in Australia that are typical holiday destinations. You you have to get on a Jetstar plane, or 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 Virgin generally flies in in there as well, um, because Jetstar is very much positioned as that family holiday destination airline. So they're advertising their website has the palm trees on the, as the background. Uh, everything they do is around packaging web uh, holidays. They, they really drum that. So out. packaging equals cheap. Well, but potentially, but it, all it means is that it, if you're looking for a holiday destination, um, you're getting the the family ready to to go on a, a holiday in Queensland for a bit of sun during the cold and windy Melbourne winter. Um, all of a sudden, it's in your mind that. That you you would jump on the Jetstar website and have a look. They have it. They advertise packages. You know, obviously they've got an overseas. Where do they go? They go to Hawaii. They go to uh, Japan. They go to uh, Southeast Asia. They you know they really have these holiday destination um, tied up. Yeah, tied up. Um, so that that's product and market, and 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 they both sit in the Qantas stable. In the Virgin stable is our service and price carriers. So the service is Virgin, as you've spoken about. They they um, really try hard to make it a pleasurable experience. They do really try hard, actually. Yeah, definitely. And then the price one is Tiger, which is obviously part of their, their stable as well. And that is, if anyone's ever flown Tiger, you know you fly Tiger when uh, you absolutely have to get somewhere and there's no other option available. Yeah, I won't fly Tiger. Or when you, your budget can't extend yeah. to paying for a, a broader ticket. So yes, and you, they're not exactly always polite to you, and yeah, it, blah, blah, blah. you feel like you're being shoved onto a plane. <laughs> you do cattle class. Yeah, no, I flew to Melbourne once. I think it was on Jetstar, and um, it flew into Avalon 
that looked like a chook shed. There was a temporary toilet. Took me an hour and a bit to get into Melbourne by bus. It was just horrific. Remember, that's got nothing to do with Jetstar and everything to do with Avalon. But, yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> so then, you know, back to, I guess, the example of, of um, that primary position and, and the fact that, or not the fact, but I guess that philosophy that there's no competition if you're positioned well, is that, you know, for years we've struggled to to support one or, or two domestic carriers in Australia. And I know that market conditions have changed over the last 20, 30 years. That, that's, that's a given. Um, however, now we support four. And then there are a bunch of other regional airlines and, and, and other ones that feed into that network as well. And they all own their, their, their client's mind in some way. They do. Theoretically, what it means is, is that with the clarity of that, that positioning, uh, product safe Qantas, uh, market holiday destinations Jetstar, service, um, good experience and fun with with Virgin and price, uh, you know, you get what you pay for with Tiger. Mm. It theoretically means that you are each one of those airlines is not competing for the other airlines customer. Which is a great place to be. They have a customer base and they can set up their business model accordingly. And this is the this is the point. It might sound like this does not apply to owner operator businesses. It absolutely fundamentally applies to the sort of businesses you and I would work in. Well, and some of those examples we've, we've given earlier on are tech- the, Yeah, they are. Yeah, but if people think, yeah, and it's a good point because we don't want people to think this is just highfalutin uh, corporate strategy that that costs millions and millions of dollars to implement. It, it doesn't. You, you can you can come up with a positioning or at least a, a diagnosis on your own position as a company by just asking those questions that you said earlier on. Draw up the matrix, product, market, service, price, and then ask yourself, are we playing at the high end, the low end, the, or the mid end, or the I guess the mid range of every one of these things in our marketplace compared to where our competitors play? I ran right into this. Yeah. Just to give you a quick example, I ran right into this with an accounting firm I was working with whose market was high net worth families. And you think that was pretty specific, wouldn't you? Anyway, I was in a, doing a coaching session with them and they were talking about this huge document or important, not specifically huge, an important document they're doing for one of their clients. Yep. And I said to them, and you know, I presume you're going to drop that into their office and have a discussion with them about that. And I said, no, no, we're going to email it. <laughs> and I was just absolutely staggered. Yeah. We had a discussion about that and about how that didn't fit into their service. So they did decide to drop it in and present the document and have a discussion. And what do you think happened at the, on the back of that? They immediately picked up two more bits of business. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that they would email that document, that they would even think of that. If you think that their market was high-end net worth families, that would suggest high-end communication. Because that's how families work. And personable. Personable, exactly. Sitting around the table with the family. Yeah, and not char- not charging them. They were shifting from time charge to project charge so they could actually have high-end conversations, yeah. good value conversations without the clock ticking. It, it, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, do you often get the feeling, and, and I know that people might think this is just a bit of a, a wanky coach talk, but do you often get the feeling that you hold your client's position more than they hold it? Oh, Totally. 
Totally, I do. Where you get a little bit, you get more irate and frustrated, and, and you're pulling your hair out and scratching your head, going, "Why on earth are you doing this?" Well, yeah, position. I do get peaky about it, but then I go, "I'm looking at your business externally, and you're looking at it internally, and you can't always see well, another point. little piece of positioning." I would send anyone listening to this podcast to look at. And I'll give the name of this because I love their positioning is Mark Lawyers, M-A-R-Q-U-E. And they took a, we are not charging for time stamps. They, they took a, we are charging for project. Yep. And the whole thing is about timelessness. Okay. Absolutely perfect piece of positioning. And you go to their website, it does not look like a loyal website. It does not read like a loyal website. Their CVs are massively amusing and it's all around timelessness. I remember, and that, that's a great example, and I remember you also sent me um, some YouTube uh, videos of, of an outdoor. Oh, yes, they're, they're a personal favourite of mine. Um, an outdoorsman yourself. Yes, it's an outdoorsman. It's a product of Cooler, made in America, called Yeti. That's it. They, they produced all these little YouTubes that don't run for terribly long about people who use their product, and you hardly even see the product. Yeah. In, you do see it, but just fleetingly, and they are so beautifully produced. And this is a real example of getting someone's getting a share of their mind. Once you were locked onto this product, you would never shift off. Yeah. They all talk about the emotion of the people using it, like a photographer who goes out and shoots amazing landscapes and blah, 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 and you just see the Yeti cooler fleetingly in that little YouTube video. They're great to watch. Yeah, and, and there's there's another piece of positioning that's lived with me for quite some time around exclusivity and the product speaking for itself, and and that's the one that uh, of Ferrari, where I'm I'm as someone that um, used to be in the advertising game yourself, Mark, um, were you aware that Ferrari don't advertise? Well, I've never seen a Ferrari ad. I think I I, I don't think I ever have. Yeah, they, they don't they don't take out ads in when a new model's coming out. I mean, obviously now it's, it, I guess the landscape's changed with social media events and launch events and things like that. Um, but it always struck me, and, and years and years ago I caught onto this this as something that mentioned that they don't advertise, and I was searching high and low to try and find um, advertisements for Ferrari. Now, is their Formula One program one big advertisement? Well, a lot of people would say yes, you know, and their racing programs and things like that. So that's probably more product development than anything. Um, but in terms of, I guess, the traditional um, media of, of advertising, they don't do it. And to me, it's just one of those really nice little quirky things where uh, our product will speak for its, itself. People who, who want one will get one. Being bright red, it does help. That always helps too. Yeah. I always remember, and and it, it, in my mind, the greatest ad, there was the, the Shell Ferrari Formula One and they use their partnership with the Ferrari Formula One team to to um, recreate this ad where a, a, an F1 car came into the uh, into the service station. Oh, yeah, I remember this. And then it drove around the world, but it went through all the eras of their relationship. And so you had these, you know, cars from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, up to the modern day car. And the sound, and the first time I ever saw it was in the cinemas. And it is. it still brings hairs up on the back of my neck. If you look up this ad on YouTube, it was, it was um, 
and I'll and I'll get the exact name for it. And I should look it up while I'm while I'm sort of rambling on here. That wasn't a Ferrari ad. That was actually for the for the you know the the the, um, the petrol company. Yeah, and Ferrari just rode on it totally successfully. Oh well, and they used they essentially used Ferrari to. to <laughs> so out of all of this, Chris, what do you think are the couple of big takeaways for? owner-operated businesses, the sort that we'd work in mostly. Ask yourself some quick questions. Is our business model in alignment? And when we talk our business model, it comes back to positioning on that product, market, service, and price. Um, if your arrows are all pointing up or all pointing down, like Jetstar, like... Uh, or Kia. Or Kia or uh, Tiger, um, it's okay. That, that's a legitimate business model because they're all aligned. Is our business model in alignment with our that, – that's the key. And then once once you've worked that out, um, ask yourself those four key questions. Are we uh, across our product, market, service, price, uh, are we high, medium or low in our marketplace? And if, if it looks like it's some up arrows and some down arrows and some middle-of-the-road arrows or if you asked your team or your clients and they can't really pick it, then you've got some work to do. What you'll end up doing is you'll probably end up talking a lot about price. You'll end up being bargained down because you actually don't, uh, you can't put your hand on what you stand for. You, it's very hard for anyone in your organisation to describe value if there's no alignment around that model. Yeah, I think that's really well articulated, actually, and you don't want to be getting into a price chat. It becomes a race to the bottom. It does become a race to the bottom. What I think with a lot of businesses, they haven't considered it. They kind of grow organically and they've taken on a lot of clients. Often they, when doing this, you find that they have a lot of historic clients who've been with them for a long time. Yep. So, so when they start a business, when they've started, they go, well, we'll take any business. You know, years down the track, those businesses aren't necessarily suited to what they do anymore or their positioning. So I, I think generally it's worth something really worth thinking about. And often I think it's really worthwhile for these businesses to ask their clients why do they buy their service or product? Why do they purchase from them in whatever, if they make something or they offer a service? And, and realistically, are we looking probably for the same answer? Um, could you just elaborate on that a bit? So if, if I asked all my clients along those lines where I asked them some questions around um, eliciting whether it was my product, market, service, or price that 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 they are drawn to most. Um, you are looking for the same answer. I am looking for the same answer, aren't I? I'd you are absolutely looking for the same answer. A little point worth noting there is they won't all articulate it the same, but it will mean the same. Yeah, yeah you're totally looking for the same answer. Anyone that's interested could go and look at the Ferrari Shell commercial, and they could look at the Yeti. Y-E-T-I, cooler YouTube videos, which are beautiful. They make me feel like taking up camping. <laughs> Steady. <laughs> but I'm Italian and, and there's a couple things Italians don't do. We don't surf and we don't camp. That's true. <laughs> which are the home of Ferrari. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful, Mark. Wonderful talking to you. Yes, fabulous, Chris. 